The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning and happy Easter. Uh, If you'll turn with me to uh, John chapter 20, what I'd like to do is uh, turn your attention towards... uh, what happened when Jesus appeared to the, his uh, followers, his disciples after the resurrection. We see a pattern here of how we as disciples of Jesus Christ are to respond to this risen Christ. Uh, he's risen because he died for us. We sing a song here, um, Oh Glorious Day. It goes, uh, living he loved me, talking about his life here on earth as a man took on our humanity and, and lived so that he might demonstrate his great love for us. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. Someday he's coming, oh glorious day. So we celebrate the resurrection because we believe that Jesus died for our sins. Uh, And what that means is, is that because of our alienated relationship with God, because of the fall, because of our sins, Jesus Christ came into the world to reconcile us with God, and he did it by standing in our place, taking on our humanity, living in this world, fulfilling what Adam should have fulfilled when he was created to be the head of the race, but he failed, and Jesus comes, uh, this eternal Son of God comes into the world, and uh, his his human name is Jesus because he is Jehovah's salvation. And once he paid that penalty, the father raised him from the dead as a demonstration that he accepted the work of Christ on our behalf. So how are we supposed to respond to this risen Christ? What is our response supposed to be? Well, let me read to you uh, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, very short passage. So when it was evening on that day, that is the first day or Sunday, the day of his resurrection, And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. They had watched him die. They had watched him be crucified. They had seen his side pierced by a sword. They saw his spear. They saw his hands uh, nailed to a cross. And he shows them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, or he literally, he breathed deeply, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. According to Romans 16, in fact, the book of Romans ends with a statement about the gospel, and it's very specific. Uh, This is what Paul says. This is how he ends his, probably what we would call his uh, magnus opus, his greatest uh, book, the book of Romans. At least that's how we feel about it. In Romans chapter 16, he ends the book this way with these words. Now to him who is able to establish according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, that is the gospel is a mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. Uh, 
To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. The gospel is here is referred to by Paul as God's mystery. It doesn't mean a riddle. What it means is it's, it was a secret that had been hidden until it was revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ in order for us to know it. Now, it was, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, but when Jesus came, those who read the Old Testament were very familiar with it. Um, the great majority of them did not see him as a fulfillment of these prophetic words in the Old Testament by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. Now, Jesus' words in Matthew 11... Uh, listen to this. He says, at that time, Jesus said, and this is what he says, I praise you, Father. He's talking to the Father in heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, Jesus Christ, there's a, I wanted to show you this. I don't know if this will, if you can see this or not. This is a painting called Forgiven. It's a picture of Jesus holding a man, and he represents humanity. He represents humanity who crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice he has a hammer and he has a nail in his hand, but he has collapsed. He's a man who is in very bad shape, and Jesus is holding him up. One of the amazing things about the invitation of Christ to all, when he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says in another place, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. That is, if you have spiritual thirst, a thirst for God, he says, come to me, because he who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He promises to give us life when we come to him in faith. And uh, what we're told is those whom, whom God chooses to reveal this secret will experience profound joy. Um, you remember Peter said, even though you, you people that he's writing to, you have never seen him, but you believe in him. And though you're not seeing him now, but trusting him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The mark of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, the primary mark is joy. In fact, it's why we worship. We worship because of an overflow of joy in God. It's an expression of our hearts of praise and gratitude towards him for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice these three things in this text. It's just a story. This is a narrative, the things that happen when Jesus appears to them. And first of all, notice that disciples rejoice in his presence in verses 19 and 20. They rejoice in his presence. And notice what's going on here. They're behind locked doors. Why is that? Well, their reason for locking the doors was their fear of the Jews, it says. That is the fear of the leaders of the nation who had condemned Jesus and had crucified him. And so they were going to start coming after his disciples. So they're in this room and they're all locked in because they don't want their enemies to be able to come in. But God's reason for them locking the door was to display the miraculous in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus enters into the room. It says Jesus came and stood in their midst. He didn't have to open a door. He came right into the room. He had passed right through the grave clothes when he was raised from the dead, and now he passes through the locked doors. No barrier can keep Jesus Christ from meeting with his people. 
It's one of the wonderful things when we meet together as the people of God, we gather to worship. We have this deep conviction that Christ is in our midst. Now, Jesus promised that. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. But sometimes we forget, and sometimes we act as though he's not even here. But the reality is, is that Christ is in the midst of his people. And so when we gather to worship, he is right there in the midst of us. And so we respond to his presence. And what they did was rejoice in his presence. It's the reason that we should be a rejoicing people. That is, we should be a people who do have an overflow of joy in God because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. The practice of the early church when they met together, and they had to meet in secret places, but when they met together on Sunday evenings, they would invoke Christ's presence with these words, Maranatha, which means, O Lord, come. They expected Christ to meet with them. They expected when they gathered with the people of God that Christ was there to meet their real spiritual needs. And so when we gather together, that is our expectation. And so now that he has their attention, what does he have to say to them? Well, notice the words. Remember, you have to remember, this is the group of men who abandoned him. When Jesus was arrested and tried and beaten and hung on a cross, they kept their distance. The only one of them who got really close was John. But the rest of them, including Peter, of course, who denied the Lord three times, And so here he appears to them now. What's he going to do? Rebuke them? What does he do? Well, he says, my peace I am giving to you. Do not let your heart be fearful. My peace I am giving to you. My shalom. That's probably one Hebrew word that all of us know, shalom. Because shalom is a greeting among the uh, uh, Hebrew-speaking people because it means peace. And Jesus says to them, my peace I am giving to you. Do not let your heart be fearful. Peace in the Bible is a redemptive term. That is, it's a result of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. It's what he promises us. It's what he gives us when we put faith in Christ. He gives us peace. Peace with God and the peace of God. That is, we actually experience it in our lives. We feel the peace of Christ as we live before him. And so Jesus says to them, my peace I am giving to you. This is what he died for. This is, uh, shalom means an unqualified sense of well-being. It really, it has the idea of when things are the way they ought to be. Let me ask you, are things the way they ought to be in your life and in your family and your job? Are the things the way they ought to be? Most of us don't feel that way because I hardly ever talk to anybody who thinks that things are the way they ought to be. (laughs) We could talk about politics. We could probably come to that conclusion real quick. But there's coming a day in which we are going to experience peace when Jesus comes back over the entire face of the earth as he reigns in glory. But at this moment, every believer has the ability to experience peace because Christ has given us his peace. He's given us peace with God, and he's given us the peace that we feel very deeply in fellowship with him. So in a sense, this proclamation of peace on Easter is a compliment 
to us, it means it's accomplished. <laughs> it's finished. The work has been done. You're at peace. It's a wonderful thing about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What it does when you believe it is it gives you peace. Joy and peace. A sense of peace with God. So he comes to them, he speaks to them, and now he reveals himself to them. Luke says in his account in Luke 24, he says, they were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. Well, of course, you would have thought the same thing because they don't immediately grasp the resurrection. They had seen Jesus hanging on a cross. They saw him die. They saw him. Some of you have seen the passion of Christ. They were there when Christ was abused and hung on a cross and when he died, when he had a a spear thrust into his side. And so now they see this same man walking around before their eyes. And so Luke says they thought they were seeing a ghost. (laughs) That's not a technical term. That's just a term that we think when we see something that just doesn't seem to be real, and we would have done the same thing. We would have thought we, we were seeing a ghost. So Jesus immediately identifies himself. Isn't that what you do when somebody's frightened by your presence? You walk into a room and they don't know you're there and all of a sudden they get nervous and you say, it's just me. It's just me. I just came into your house because I needed some water. I know we don't know each other, but I just saw the door open. So I came in <laughs> to get a glass of water. And so he identifies himself and he shows them both his hands and his side, the wounds His wrists had been pierced by spikes, like you saw in that picture. I guess it's still up there. Um, And so they see him with these scars. He shows them his hands and his feet. Because this is why it's important. These men who were meeting in this room, who were locked into this room, are God's chosen witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This book that we call the Bible... The entire New Testament is written by these eyewitnesses and, and those that followed them. These are eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who would ever believe that, that the dead are raised? Who could ever believe that someone dies right before your eyes and then they're made alive? Well, these eyewitnesses have reported to us exactly what happened. And, and we're told in Acts chapter 10, when Peter's preaching to a group, the house of Cornelius, if you remember, He's preaching to him. He says, we are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Remember, this is Peter who saw Christ arrested. And for fear, he denied Christ three times. But now he's been restored. And he says, we watched all this. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. But not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And when you read the New Testament, when you read through the early chapter, the late chapters of Luke and the early chapters of Acts, you see that for 40 days, Jesus was with his disciples. They saw him, they ate with him, and now they have become the eyewitnesses. They were appointed to be eyewitnesses. And, and Peter goes on and says, of him all the prophets bear witness. That is, the entire Old Testament speaks about this coming Savior who's going to die and be raised from the dead. You heard it this morning in Isaiah 53. If he would make his soul an offering, a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He'll see those that he saves through his death. 
and he'll be satisfied. That may be the only person in the universe that's satisfied with you. If you've rested your faith in Christ, everybody else in the world may be dissatisfied with you, but he's satisfied because he purchased you with his own blood. And then he says, so of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What a glorious promise. Forgiveness of sins. If you've ever sinned against a human being, and sin, the word sin means uh, rebellion against God. But sometimes when we do wrong towards one another, we have the same kind of dynamic. How can we be forgiven? If you've ever, ever done something you know, really unfaithful to someone that's close to you. And you want their forgiveness. But you have no guarantee that you're going to receive it. And what Jesus says is that because he died for us, that he offers us forgiveness. He offers us God's forgiveness. And God's welcome into his very presence. And so here they are in the presence of Jesus Christ, and he tells them that they're going to be forgiven. They were forgiven because of his work. Nothing fills our heart with joy like the unveiling of this Savior and Lord. Every person in this room who's come to faith in Christ, what happened to you was at some point in your life, at some point in your life, you came to see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on your behalf, and you put your faith in him. Your eyes were open to who he was, and you received this gift of forgiveness that can never be taken away from you. That's kind of what that picture is illustrating. The man who, who painted this picture was trying to communicate the fact that Jesus died for us, and he's fully aware of how sinful we are. Most everybody you know is not, near, is, is not aware of how sinful you are. Right? Most people don't know how bad you are. The gospel says, cheer up, you're worse than you think, and God knows it, but his grace is far greater than you ever imagined because he sent his son into the world to bring forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation with him. And so the first thing that happens is they rejoice in in Christ's presence, and that's what disciples do. Disciples rejoice in the presence of Christ. When we gather together for worship, that's why we gather. We gather to rejoice in his presence. And then the second thing in verse 21 is we pursue his purpose. He says, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I am sending you. Sent. See, Jesus is described as the sent one. In fact, there's an occasion in his life where he heals a blind man, and he does it in a very unusual way. He puts mud on his eyes, and then he tells him to go wash his eyes off at the pool of Siloam. And the word Siloam means sent one. It's a title of Jesus Christ. He's the sent one. He's the one that the Father sent into the world to rescue us from our sin. In fact, he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he says it in such a way that implies that he is always going to be the sent one because he came to rescue us. And we're always going to know him as the one who has come to rescue us and bring us into fellowship with the living God. 
So he commissions his apostles right here to carry on the work of Christ. And guess what? It's true of every Christian that he sins us. You might think, well, I've never been sent. Yeah, you have. If you've put faith in Christ, you've been sent. You may not be aware of it, but you are his witness. And you've been sent into the world to bear witness of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean to be a preacher. It doesn't mean that you have to stand before a bunch of people and speak like this. It means that you have to bear witness to the Savior who has saved you, who's given you life. Jesus has been sent, and now he sends his disciples to fulfill his work, to carry out his work. And they've been doing that for 2,000 years. Uh, some of you probably saw this <clears throat> news story on, one of the, I think it was on CBS, about persecution of Christians in, um, in China. There's always been persecution there for many years, but it has been times of great severity. For example, they would go in and they'd take bulldozers and just knock churches down and demolish them. Or they infiltrate Christian groups and try to, uh, to do damage to them, to make them so fear the consequences of being a follower of Christ, that they will abandon Christ. You know what always happens when that takes place in the world? The United States is one of the few places on this planet where Christians have never been persecuted. Every place else in the world you go, just about, Christians have experienced persecution. But what always happens when Christians are persecuted is they get more bold in their witness. On this news, this news pro, uh, story that they did on CBS, the reporter went into a little church, what they call a house church, a family church, a church that meets in a home, and he asked the people there, how many of you have been in prison or jail because you are a Christian, a follower of Christ? Every single person there raised their hand. Uh, the leaders in China think that going to prison is like going to seminary, you know, <laughs> Pastors typically go to seminary for a while and get some training before they attempt to do this work. Well, in China, they throw you in prison, and that's where you're trained. Very intensive training. Sharing the gospel in that kind of a context. So Jesus, this parallel, Jesus says he was sent by his Father into the world to reveal the Father and save the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he says to his disciples, I'm sending you back into the world to reveal me, to take my message, to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was entirely obedient. He obeyed the Father. He came into the world, and he accomplished our salvation. And now he sent us into the world, and we've been born of God, and we've been sealed with the Spirit and sanctified by the Spirit so that we would bear witness of Christ. I think what happens to so many Christians is because they never actually experience what it feels like to bear witness, they are so intimidated by it. It doesn't need to be intimidating at all. You will find that most people uh, are not going to bite you. Uh, They're not going to hate you. They're not going to vilify you when you start sharing your personal faith in Jesus Christ and what it's done. What kind of an impact has he had in your life? What is it like to follow Christ? When you share that, you'll find out that people are very interested in what you've experienced, and you can tell them the gospel, the gospel. The gospel is given to us in the the most compact place, if you want to know, is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, it says, this is the gospel, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, 
and that he was buried. And the reason he was buried was because he died. And he was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, and he was seen by a multitude of disciples after the resurrection. That's the gospel. It's the good news that God has brought salvation to us through the work of his son. And so God has sent us on this mission to tell the world. The third thing, not only do they rejoice in his presence and pursue his purpose, he sends them on this mission. But third, we rejoice and labor in his promises. Notice verses 22 and 23. If you have your Bibles open, verse 22 says, and when he had said this, he breathed. It means he took in a breath and he exhaled. He breathed and he and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed deeply. Now this makes sense because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the word Spirit, both in the Old and New Testament, is a word for breath or wind. And so Jesus breathes real deeply and says, receive the Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So first of all, he says that we are to, uh, we have been given this promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 22 the promise of the Spirit. But what do you make of this verse? Because if you read the Bible at all, you know that they're not going to receive the Spirit for another 40 days. So why does he say to them, why does he inhale and exhale and say, receive the Spirit? Well, it's like many other things in the New Testament. It's, it's a prophetic act that Jesus is reminding them that what has been promised to them is that when he goes back to the Father, he's going to send the Spirit and they're going to receive the Spirit. John seven thirty seven. Jesus says, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains, he spoke this about the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been given, because Christ had not yet been glorified. So Christ isn't yet glorified in this particular place. He's not yet been glorified. But he's going to be. And when he's glorified, that is when he goes back to the Father. He's going to pour out his spirit upon his people. So he's making this this prophetic act. In other words, receive him when he comes. And he ties it to the fact that he's sending them on mission. It would be totally foolhardy for you to go on a mission for Jesus Christ if you don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true in some circles that it's taught that you don't have the Spirit until you have some second blessing, some very spectacular thing happen. But the Bible says, Romans 8, verses 9 says, uh, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if, you, if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, then you don't belong to Christ. So every believer has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's been given to you in order to empower you to fulfill this mission that Jesus has sent you on to bear witness to his son. So the promise of the Spirit is, I'm going to pour out the Spirit, receive the Spirit. This is the only way we can fulfill this mission. But the next thing in verse 23 is the promise of the gospel. What a statement this is in verse 23 when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. You think, what in the world does that mean? Does somebody, some human being have the ability to forgive people and then not forgive others? Is that what's going on? No, not at all. He's telling them in light of their, what they are to do is to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
When those who hear you believe on Christ, their sins are forgiven, and they remain forgiven. And if they refuse to believe, they retain their sins. Forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ, and you receive Jesus Christ by faith. So we have all have this memory verse that we've all memorized, Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. I see your lips moving. Uh, and it's, and it's, this, it's, it's not of works, as anyone should boast, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So salvation is a gift that's received by faith. And so what he's saying is when you preach the gospel and those believe this message, their sins are forgiven. And he's saying there's going to be effects, divine effects. As you communicate the gospel to others, God is going to produce eternal divine effects, the forgiveness of sins. It's an amazing thing that you have. This, this message that you have that will literally change people's lives. I've mentioned before uh, going to a um, timeshare meeting when they're trying to sell you a timeshare. And you always do that if you want to get free tickets to Disney World or something like that. And you know what that's like? You go in there and these people are all hyped up and they're trying to s- sell you. And you tell them in the meeting, I'm not really interested. I just want the free tickets. That's okay. No problem. Just sit here and listen to this. And then they twist and twist and twist trying to get you to buy a timeshare. And when somebody buys a timeshare, they all cheer and go into this great hullabaloo because they've sold a timeshare. That's not the way the gospel is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gift that you have to receive. Nobody can talk you into receiving the gospel. Only the spirit of the living God can open your eyes where it becomes unmistakable to you that this message about salvation in Christ is true. And you receive by faith. This is a hard part about the gospel and salvation that God offers. God doesn't have a, a pay plan. He doesn't have a zero interest payment plan. He has one way of receiving salvation, and that one way is faith. You have to receive salvation as a gift. One of the things that has to happen is you have to realize you don't deserve it. Sometimes people think, well, I know I don't deserve it. I wouldn't even go down the path. Well, that's the idea. It's like that guy in the picture. That's how we all are. We don't deserve it. And when we come to understand that, and we know that we must receive this by faith, we have to receive it as though it is a gift, because that's what it is. It is a gift. It's a gift that God gives us. And when we receive it, it brings profound joy. In Acts 13... This whole idea of this, the apostles remitting sin. In Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In other words, we're preaching the gospel to you, and what we are doing is we are proclaiming the forgiveness of sins to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which he could not be freed or justified through the law of Moses. In other words, there's no way that we could ever earn salvation from God. He would have to give it to us as a gift, and this is exactly what he offers, a gift. And those who receive it are those who know that they need it, and that's what the Spirit does. He opens our eyes to our need of salvation and forgiveness, and when we believe, we receive. Some of you probably have seen the, if you may not remember it, but the 
this was a, a movie that Robert De Niro was in, but it's, a, it's called A Bronx Tale. But there's one scene in that movie that's very captivating. Uh, what, what's happening there in this, in this movie is that a little nine-year-old boy, one of the actors, he runs out of a confessional of his Catholic, local Catholic church with relief and joy. He's jumping and running and having a great time. He's been involved in something that's really very, very bad, and he had discussed it with this priest, and the priest absolved him of guilt. Mia absolvo tua, you have been forgiven. I absolve you. And he leaves feeling all this joy, but this is what he says as he's, as he's running through the streets. He's saying, it's great to be Catholic. It's great to go to confession. You can start over every week. And, you know, we as, we as Protestants, we, people who believe in a biblical view, we have different, very different understanding of what's really going on there. But you know what? It kind of shames us in this sense. Because there are times where Christians carry around the weight of their own self-condemnation because they just can't bring themselves to, to believe that the Christ who died for them has died for that sin that is weighing them down and overwhelming them. You see, every time we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, every time we hear the truth that Christ died for our sins and that forgiveness has been granted to us by faith as a gift, we can rejoice and say it's great to be a Christian. It's great to be a Christian. It's great to be forgiven. And life can start over every day in a sense because, yeah, we all do fail. We understand that. But what 1 John 1, 9 says is, as a believer, as I walk in fellowship with Christ, I don't hide my sin. All that does is destroy me on the inside. When I fail, if I, if I let somebody down, I need to confess my sin to them and to the Father. And what John says is if we confess our sins instead of hiding them, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can walk clean before God. And it's all based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the blood of Christ may sound like an offensive phrase to you, but what that means is it's referring to the fact that Jesus died, but he died a certain kind of death. He died a violent death under the judgment of God. He didn't die of old age. He was 33 years old. He died because he was beaten and abused and hung on a cross, nailed to a cross. Why would he do that? Why would the Father allow that to happen? Well, I don't know if you picked up on it but this morning, but when Steve was reading Isaiah 53, it says the Father was pleased to crush him. If he would make his soul a guilt offering, he would see his seed. Now, this is an amazing thing that Christ was willing to lay down his life, to suffer what he suffered for the joy of purchasing you with his blood so that he could present you to the Father and he could present the Father to you. That's an amazing thing. What would you be willing to suffer for? Jesus gave his life. And he didn't give his life in an easy way. That's why it keeps talking about the blood of Christ. This was a violent death. And it's portrayed in different movies like, like The Passion of Christ. Believe me, it was worse than that. But the real suffering wasn't the physical suffering. It was the spiritual suffering. He was willing to take your place, to put himself where you, you were before you were saved, alienated from God. And so he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?
He was forsaken. He was willing to be forsaken for you so that he could bring you into relationship with his father. Isn't that incredible? And this, this work of Christ was, is a work. It was very, very difficult. He gave himself up for us. An amazing thing. You know, we come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed because, like that little boy who misunderstood something, who was happy because he could start over, we come to hear the gospel preached because we want to be reminded that our forgiveness is in Christ. There's never a week that passes that I don't talk with somebody who's approached me for some reason, that they're going through something that they're overwhelmed with. I was with somebody this week. I'd never been with anybody so downtrodden and depressed. I'm so glad there is an answer for the downtrodden, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the word gospel, euangelia, means good news, but it means good news in this sense. It's news that you receive that makes you glad. Have you ever gotten any news like that? That you got news that made you so happy you could hardly contain yourself? That's what gospel means. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the good news that come to us once, comes to us at a time in which we are very much aware of how far from God we really are. And then the good news comes. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll give you life, Jesus says. And so that's why when we gather together, we rejoice and we celebrate over this good news. You know, when I preach the gospel, I always receive the message for me, especially as you're preparing and thinking about these things. I'm so glad of the good news. I need it so bad. I'm so glad that every day I can come before the throne of grace and find forgiveness. One of the hardest things in life for people that are wired like me is when people are, someone is unhappy with you and they let you know it because you already assume that you don't measure up. So when they actually testify to it, it makes you feel so defeated. There's only one place that you can run to at times like that and be encouraged, and that's to the one who died for you and who says, I'm satisfied with you. Wouldn't it be nice to have somebody to call you up and say, I just want to call you and tell you how satisfied I am with you. You are a great blessing to my life. I'm so glad we are friends or family or whatever. See, Jesus Christ, when, when in Isaiah 53 that you heard this morning, when it says if he would make his soul a guilt offering, that is, if he would stand in our place and suffer the penalty for our sins, he will see his seed. You know what his seed is? It's believers. It's those who believe in Christ. He will see his seed and be satisfied. And be satisfied. Man, it's wonderful to be in, this, in a group of believers because he's satisfied with us. And we are so aware of how far short we fall from perfection, aren't we? And yet he's satisfied because he purchased us. And he has a wonderful plan that he's working out and conforming us into his own image. And so when we run to him, we find one who has, is satisfied with us. I'm so glad I found that out some years ago. What a great place to turn.
to the one who loves you so much he died for you. In the book of Revelation, it's the only place that tells us that he died for us because he loved us. Every other place it says he died for us because he loved the Father, and the Father sent him to redeem us with his own blood. But in Revelation, it says that he loves us, present tense. He loves us, and he died for us. You get that? And he wants you to keep preaching this gospel to your heart, believer. He wants you actually to believe this glorious gospel. He wants you to believe it today and tomorrow. And if you're here and you've never believed the gospel, he offers this salvation, this forgiveness, this reconciliation with God simply by faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close by praying for you. If you'd bow your heads with me. Our Father, we are a blessed people because we've received something we don't deserve that we could never earn. We could never get to the place where we deserved it, but you gave it to us as a gift in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that comes through faith in Christ. We thank you, Father, because of his work in standing in our place and fulfilling all righteousness and dying in our stead that we have received by faith, simply by receiving it as a gift, we have received by faith this glorious salvation. I pray for anyone who's here this morning uh, that you know our hearts, Father, and I pray for those who have not yet experienced the joy of forgiveness and salvation in Christ, that you would cause the Spirit to come in power in their life and open their eyes to the glorious of this salvation. It glorifies you because you're the giver of this good salvation. And so we pray that you would work in all of our hearts, that you'd open our eyes, open our hearts towards you. I pray for us as believers that you'd give us a hunger for you, more than a hunger for anything else in life. This world is continually presenting us things that, they, that is put to us as though we should hunger after this, that this is the good life. But instead, I pray that you'd open our eyes to the fact, no, the good life is Jesus Christ. And we want to pursue you and love you and hunger after you. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And that's what we've received in him, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.